Life Audio. You are listening to The Beckett Cook Show with your host, Beckett Cook. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. To help support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash the Beckett Cook Show. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a five-star rating. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Today I have a very special guest, Cynthia Garrett. She is a TV personality, and back in the day she was the host of VH1, and she was one of the hosts on VH1, and I remember watching her all the time, and she had such a soothing kind of presence and she was on MTV. She um, she did a bunch of hosting on red carpets for the Grammys, the the Billboard Awards, the Emmys, the VMAs. And she's written two books. And she has acted in movies. And uh, and so I'm I'm excited to talk about her story today because it's so amazing. She came to faith in Christ in a prison cell in Italy when she was in prison for three months, uh, which is a crazy, she was kind of like, it's like the Amanda Knox story, but <laughs> crazier. So I'm excited to talk to her about her story, about how she came to faith in Christ and what happened after that and her, her life. Her life is amazing. But first, a word from our sponsor. Well, good day to you. It's Joel with The King Country dropping in to let you know that our brand new film, Unsung Hero, is in theaters now. It's Luke here. We've teamed up with the creators of Jesus Revolution to bring you this adventure of a lifetime. It's a powerful, true story about a family uniting, growing in their faith, and facing the impossible together. In theaters now, unsunghero.movie for more information. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. Welcome, Cynthia Garrett. Thank you, Beckett. It's good to be here. And like I was saying, I can't believe we haven't met. We had to have met somewhere in our travels through Hollywood. I know. Tokyo, <laughs> somewhere, Rome, somewhere. In... Somewhere glamorous on a red carpet. <laughs> yeah, because you were in Italy for a while, which I want to get to at yeah. right now, because um, this is kind of the key moment in your life that is I mean, when I read this in your book, I was so in, in the prodigal daughter, uh, prodigal daughter, a journey home to identity. I was just so stunned by this story because um, I and I've heard you say it's kind of like you're the original Amanda Knox. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so tell us how you came to faith in Christ in Italy in a prison cell and tell us. But, but before you do that, tell us how you ended up in a prison cell in Italy? Oh, I mean, boy, that's the short answer to that, Beckett, is- You can tell us the long answer. Yeah, yeah. Well, here here you go. The short answer is looking for love in all the wrong places. (laughs) You know? Yes. (laughs) The long answer is, uh, 
I was sexually abused as a little girl. And um, I really, I didn't really confront it and deal with it until later in life. So I sort of started out and went through my early 20s and 30s with really low self-esteem, really um, self-destructive in a lot of ways, Um, a complete classic overachiever, you know, which is kind of, you know, now years later after clinically really understanding sexual abuse, because I mentor so many other people who've been through it, um, you know, sexual abuse victims become one of two personality types, extreme overachievers or, um, or extremely, um, what, what, you know, uh, how would I describe it? They, 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 they become extreme overachievers with a lot of relationships or they have no relationships at all and are, and, and are successful. That's what happened with me up too, because I was sexually abused when I was nine years old. I think you were nine as well. Yeah. And, and, um, it, that led to, and, and, you know, it, it manifests itself in different ways, but for this thing with me, it led to so many, you know, looking for men and, uh, to validate me just like you did and looking for men and, and, um, and going through so many relationships after relationship and thinking like, Oh, this guy's going to save me. That guy's going to save me. And I mean, it does being sexually abused when you're young really does a number on you. It does a major number on you. Oh my gosh. That's one of the things I could really relate to about your testimony is when you talk about, you know, looking like, Oh, maybe this one is my savior. Oh, maybe this one is my savior because that is so it there's such an innocence to it. You know, it's interesting. It's almost like you become this, it's promiscuous in a, in a sense, right? It's, it's, it, it, and it's, you know, rather a decadent, indulgent kind of a pursuit when you're just so focused on relationships like that. But then there's this innocence to it because at the end of the day, the broken child is just looking for someone to love her or him, you know, and that was really, that was really, you know, my story. And I, uh, my road to self-esteem and, and confidence was really and truly one that was long, hard fought and, you know, and, and all got like Jesus, <laughs> my faith really, really put me in a position to have confidence for the first time in my life. And um, so I, you know, I kind of started, you know, out pursuing Hollywood and, and living in West Hollywood and surrounded sort of by young celebrity and, and everybody was young and going for it. You know, I could, I related to that about your testimony too. It's like, you're all like, you're, you know, you can do, you can do anything, you know, it's that, it's that time of life, right. Where you're just young and you're going for it, but um, totally ill-equipped. You know, I was emotionally really ill-equipped. And so by the time I met the man that I would run off and marry, I was really reeling from a break from a really bad breakup from with- this, from this guy river who I don't know if that's his real name, but you were, yeah. um, you, so that really, that breakup with river. I mean, that was kind of like the, the love of your life. Yeah. Yeah. It, and, it, right. Right. It and devastated so, me. <clears throat> and so what, ha- what happened after that breakup? How did that? I, you know, uh, what happened after that breakup was I started, I I started really abusing myself. You know, I was trying to get over him. So of course, you know, good looking guy and successful guy after the next to to kind of rub it in his face to make, you know, see what you're missing, you know, see, see what you threw away, but then, you know, that's not really working. So, you know, 
drugs and, and Coke and a lot of stuff was pretty rampant, you know, mm -hmm. uh, then. And I was kind of hanging with a crowd that was very, you know, open to all of those things. And I met this guy, you know, in a grocery store in West Hollywood one night. And uh, it was like he, he what? followed. Can you say what grocery store it was? Because I live yeah. right here. Yeah, I was uh, on, on Little Santa Monica and it was the Mayfair Market. Okay, yeah. Do you, do you know where that? Do you know where it is? I remember that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I don't think it's there anymore. I don't. I don't think so either. It, I think it was across the street from a, the dry cleaners over there. But yeah, I don't think it's there anymore either. But um, you know, I, I I went to the market um, because my my quote unquote brother Lenny was in the recording studio that Lenny night. Lenny Kravitz. Yeah, yeah. Why do you wait? I tell me because I even after reading the book, I'm like, are they? biological brothers and sisters. I can't tell. What's the deal? We're not related by blood. It's more of a step and a family thing. And, you know, we really uh, got protective of our relationship when we were, when we were kind of getting into our twenties because everyone assumed that we must've been sleeping together. You know, they were just like, there's no way you can be friends with her. And there's no way you can be friends with him if you guys aren't. And he, and so for us, it was like, okay, we're family, we're brother and sister, and that's that. And everybody get out of our business, you know? Did, did was, you meet in high school at Beverly Hills High School? We did. Yeah. When, okay. we, were, when we were 15. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and we're, I mean, it's funny. I just talked to him yesterday. I mean, we just have been inseparable since we were kids. And, and, you know, we've walked through a lot of ups and downs in life with each other, you know, including the beginning of our career and, this guy, you know, yeah, that, he that, was not into this guy. No, he was not into this guy. I, I meet this guy because Lenny is in the studio and uh, the guy kind of trailed me to my car and all of my warning signals went off. All of them, all of them. This is the, this is the part where if you don't pay attention to your gut, you're, you really are not listening to, to, to God speaking to you. Now I know it was the Holy spirit saying, run, you know, but yeah. I didn't, I didn't know that back then, you know, it was just like, oh, whatever. So I go home from the market. I get my groceries. Um, this guy stands at the car. I kind of, I'm, I'm really pushing back at him and his friend who are like, come out with us, come meet us. We're going out for coffee later with a group of people. And I was like, I don't no Thanks. I mean, I just, he kind of skeeved me out. I didn't yeah. really want to be bothered, but he wrote his number down on, on a piece of paper, put it in my hand. I left. Well, when I, by the time I got home and cooked, Lenny decided he was working late. So honestly, I was bored later on that night. And in a moment of boredom, I decided I would go out and meet this new group of people. We'll be right back after this short break. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. 
Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. I mean, this was out in Beverly Hills, right, that night? Yeah, it was. Like a, like a club or what was it? Was it a it, club? No, it was a restaurant. Oh, my gosh. What was it called? I can't remember. I can see it in my head. Um, but I can't, I can't remember the name. Oh, it's driving me nuts. I, I, I think it's in my book. I think Not it's Spago. It wasn't Spago. No, it wasn't Spago. Uh, uh-uh, cause Spago was still up on sunset. Still then. On sunset yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's like, I can remember when Spago was on sunset. I oh, know. I, I, did too. I used to go there on sunset. Yeah. It's crazy. So that's it. You know? So, uh, he walked into the restaurant. He no longer looked like the scruffy guy in soccer gear that followed me to the car in the market. He was drop dead gorgeous. And at that time in my life, I kind of consumed men like guys consume girls. And I was quite proud of that because that was a defense mechanism I put in place to keep myself from getting hurt again, Mm -hmm. because my sexual abuse was starting to really bubble under the surface. And I was in a lot of pain. And didn't know what to do with it and didn't know who to tell. You know? Yeah. 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 And so you, so you end up in a relationship with, with him mm-hmm. and very quickly he asked you to marry him like yeah. the next yeah. week or something. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, uh, he ex- ex- explained to me that he was, he was a, a, a you know, he was a model which is so, it's so funny to say it in hindsight because it's so out of character for me. You know, like every boyfriend I ever had was someone that I knew in college, you know? So the, here comes this like handsome European total stranger uh, who's a model, you know? And, and, um, and you know, he had the portfolio from Armani and Ferre and whatever to, to go with it. And he certainly looked like a model. So I believed it. Well, the modeling job was a front for a lot of stuff, but um, he wanted to get married. He said, you know, we should get married because I'm going to leave to go work. And if I'm going to come back here, I want to know that you want to be with me. And that sort of, you know, we spent a few weeks together in LA and then he left and he was supposed to be back in two weeks. And maybe about four weeks after he was gone, um, you know, it was like, well, when are you coming back? You know? And he was like, well, there's no reason for me to come back if you don't marry me. And then it, then it sort of got, it became this game of cat and mouse. Once I said, well, yes, because by that point, unbeknownst to him, I was staying up all night long, partying with my friends and really uh, spending a lot of nights crying because I didn't know why I was hurting so bad on the inside. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want him to know that because of course, you know, it was yet another relationship and yet another role for me, for me, the relationships were like roles. You know, it's interesting when I did inner healing, um, and I don't know how, how much you know about this stuff, but when I did inner healing, um, part of what I went through was about confronting childhood brokenness. And so my sexual abuse caused a lot of brokenness. And it's sort of like, uh, you know, we are mind, body, and soul, you know, a personality. Mm-hmm. And when we get broken as a kid, it's you, you, you read my book, so you probably already got this. It's like, like 
you're a plate that functions, but there's a lot of chips on the plate. So it's no longer the beautiful piece of china it was made to be. It's got a lot of damage. And even though it still works as a plate, it can cut people because it's damaged or uh, people can, you know, continue to chip away at it. And so that's kind of how I felt in my soul. And um, I think this guy just, he tapped into the deepest wells of my pain from my childhood yeah. sexual abuse. And I didn't know it at the time. I do now. But at the time, I just saw him as a means of escape because I was really, for me, my walk on the wild side with my friends and Coke in the 80s and staying up all night for days at a time and, you know, binging and it was getting to be too much. You know, yeah. it's like, it's like, you know, I look at what this generation calls too much and I'm like, oh my gosh, I mean, I would have been dead. Yeah. yeah. I tapped, <laughs> I tapped out way before it got to some of these. Other yeah, things, praise you God. Know? Yeah. <laughs> praise God. Exactly. But I mean, I had an addictive personality and I was in pain, mm-hmm. you know, so it was, it, it was guys, drugs, alcohol, whatever it was, shopping, whatever, you know, the ism uh, in that addiction, uh, you know, I have, I paid attention to for years because typically you just trade addictions, right? You know, yeah, get cured yeah. one and trade for another. But anyway, so he convinced me on the phone that I should come to Paris and marry him. So, um, and this is, and this is how long since you've known him, it was how long into your relationship was that? It was three months, almost to the week when I got on a plane against everyone that I know's better judgment and went to Paris to get married to him and sort of created this fairy tale in my mind. It was going to get me away from my life, you know, in, in LA and from my friends who were starting to want to, you know, some of them wanted to experiment with other stuff. A couple of, I was hanging out with some of the Brat Pack, which, you know, was kind of the eighties moniker on a group of actors and right. I, you know, no names, like, uh, but yeah, the, I, yeah, I know the, the Brat Pack, it was uh, all those guys. Uh, Ed Nelson and Ali Sheedy and yeah, yeah. Exactly. And what's his name? Uh, the, the good looking guy. What's his name? Um, you know, oh, Rob, Rob Lowe, Lowe. Rob Lowe. Yeah, he was yeah. Like the leader of the pack. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but you know, one of them who was always kind of the darker character in the crew anyway, even in his roles, you know, he's like, we should all try, you know, we should all start trying heroin. And I was like, it's time for me to go. Andrew okay. McCarthy. Okay. Yeah. No. It, was to, it, yeah. it wasn't him. <laughs> okay. It was time to go. <laughs> it was time to go. It was time for me to be done. And, and here was this guy. And I felt like he was offering me a way out because he said that he never did drugs and blah, blah, blah. But interestingly enough, he said that after asking me one evening before he left, do you know anybody who buys cocaine? And I lied like a rug because I didn't want him to know that I was experimenting with this stuff because I thought, oh no, he's a, he's a good guy. He'll think I'm terrible. Well, as the story would go, he was basically testing me to see if he could sell to anybody that I knew, not really understanding what I was doing out of my pain, but he was looking for his own angle. I walked into the perfect trap. Cause you told it, cause you told him that you never did drugs. So he, yeah. he, yeah. So that, yeah. 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 So then it became, yeah, because I would hate to be with someone who does, who does that, you know, and, uh, it, it's interesting. He didn't know me and I didn't know him. We were both when in hindsight, we were both using each other with, with, you know, for our own agendas. And I think he saw all of my weaknesses 
You know, I think he saw how to exploit me. And, you know, I was kind of an open book, you know, in my, in my 20s then anyway, uh, an open book of pain and confusion. And I was lost. You know, I was really yeah. lost. It's really, yeah, I mean, I was lost. Yeah. And so you go, so you go to Paris with your mom and maybe a couple other people and you get married to him in Paris. Yeah. Yeah. We were in Paris about, oh God, I guess, I don't know, five, seven days, something like that. And on day three, we get married. But, but the crazy thing is when we got to Paris, now, mind you, I hadn't seen him in a couple of months. So we and get he was there. super emotionally abusive to you, by the way. By that, it was extremely emotionally abusive. Extremely. Yeah, extremely. And I, I talk a lot about it in my book, but it was like he would throw me back into the sea to reel me in tighter, throw me back into the sea to reel me in tighter. And it was a real classic uh, e- emotional abuse. And it was and like then, gaslight. he was like gaslighting you. So totally. like, it's crazy. Yeah, it was crazy. And then, you know, then he would call me names. I, I've never been spoken to ever in my life the way that he would speak to me. I mean, it was like, it's not even repeatable. It's like, you know, you fat, dumb, and, you know, expletive, expletive, expletive. And I mean, it was, it was jarring. Like it was, it was days of total chaos because I didn't know what happened to him. You know, on the phone, I could see this little push me, pull me thing beginning before I left to go and get married to him. And by that point, I was just desperate that he would marry me so that I could get away from where I was. But when I got there, I really didn't know what happened to him because he changed. And and then we were surrounded by a lot of like this cast of characters of people. And I had no idea who they were. They, I had no idea why they were all around. I knew that they were all doing coke in bathrooms and at parties and stuff because unbeknownst to him, I knew what that looked like too, because I was running from that. Yeah. And so he apparently was everyone's dealer. And um, so we're, you know, hanging out at like Bandouche and, you know, all these famous clubs in Paris. And, <laughs> and he had, he had actually um, a few nights, you know, everything was like, all comped and his name everywhere and blah, blah, blah. Well, I found out that he had traded my brother's name, you know, for all kinds of stuff in Paris. So he was using Lenny Kravitz as kind of his entree into all these like parties and clubs and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Our whole wedding dinner was, I assumed he paid for. No, he traded, he traded, oh, Lenny, I'll get Lenny to appear, you know, for the dinner. So he, he, of course, he was my brother. He was coming to the you know, he was coming to be with me. He was on tour there. So he's like, I'm going to come, but I hate him. And I think you're making a huge mistake. And if you realize you've made a mistake, call me, I will be on tour in Europe. I will get you out of here. And um, yeah, but he just he gaslighted everybody, you know? And, and there was one, one moment that was, this was kind of before this, but where I think this was in Europe where he took you to the store and he's like, can you run in and grab like X, Y, Z? And he gave you his credit card and you... <laughs> You get to the counter and they they call the police because the card is like fraudulent. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I ran out of the store. Yeah. You ran. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there were, there, oh, that's right. It's been, God, it's been so long, you know, since I've spoken about the details of it. But um, yeah, I mean, there were so many things where it was like, what did I marry? Who is this person? 
you know, what, I mean, who sends someone into a, a store and says they love them and gives them a stolen credit card, you know, cause I, they were all stolen credit cards. Yeah. He had a bunch yeah. of them. Yeah. Yeah. So then you, so after the wedding, you guys, you, you're thinking we're going to go on our honeymoon. It's been terrible. He's, he's been super mean to me. He's been he's very abusive, but we're going to go on the honeymoon and that's going to just solve everything. So what happened on the honeymoon? So on the, you're supposed to go to the South of France, but you ended up in Italy somehow. Exactly. So on the honeymoon, as we're racing through the South of France at like two o'clock in the morning, and he's, you know, threatening to kill me and throw me out of the car because I, now I'm asking him questions. Who are the guys, you know, that you're doing all this business with? Why couldn't I be in the room with them? Why are you, what happened to you? What is wrong with you? What did I do wrong? Why did you marry me? I mean, it's obvious you don't like me. So why am I here? And, you know, question after question after question, he just got angrier and angrier and more violent. And at one point he stopped the car, pulled over to the side of a cliff and tried to throw me out of the car. And so, and it's literally, it's like two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning. So I'm screaming and crying and, you know, holding on to the car. And, and oh my God, it was, a, it, talk about a, a, a crap show. I mean, it's just <laughs> unbelievable. And, um, and he, you know, he basically said, shut up, don't say another word or I'm going to kill you. You have no idea what I'm doing. I will kill you. And at that point I realized, okay, God, I've, I've, I got to be real, like with you. I mean, I've made a huge mistake. Like, like you don't know that, you know, and I've, taken my entire life for granted because I don't know why I'm here or what I'm doing. And I was terrified at that point. And um, we crossed over the border. We went into Italy. We actually had to take a ship. You, you know, you drive your car onto this ship in Civitavecchia in, in Italy. And mm -hmm. it took us down to Sardinia, to the island where he was going to meet some people. And it had something to do with the three guys that he had been regularly meeting with in Paris and two of them were brothers, very elegant, very uh, wealthy, um, you know, very good looking Italian, you know. Um, the other guy was Serbian or Yugoslavian of some sort like him. Well, it turned out he and the other guy, which is just as crazy, actually, that we're talking about this, because I just found out literally last week what happened to the other guy, um, because it was in a news story in Italy and my friends there who I got to be friends with through this experience sent it to me. So he's meeting this guy in Paris named Mariano Schida, uh, who's the other, he's Italian and Serbian or Yugoslavian. The other two guys are the Italian brothers. They were, um, I guess they were the money. They were the, they were the mafia. Apparently this whole thing was being organized and he was a mule basically for the mafia, the whole modeling thing that he had and Mariano had was so that they could move easily across borders and in and out of other countries. And a, according to an organization in Paris called the Balkan group that investigated a lot of this stuff, they were the, or the Serbians, the Yugoslavians were selling drugs around the, around the world, around Europe to buy, to get money, to buy arms for the civil war that was going on there. Right. right. So, yeah. So I, I was like, are you, Oh my God, it got so convoluted and crazy. Um, but so we get into Italy and, um, there was a certain point where he, he went into the, 
the glove compartment and he cut open the he cut open the dashboard, you know, kind of underneath the glove and took out these leather packages and he cut into one. It was full of cocaine, which is the irony of my life, because here I didn't want anything to do with drugs. I want I never wanted to to experiment in my life with Coke again. I wanted to get away from all this. I lied to him and said, no, I, I've never done it. I've never. And here he was trafficking cocaine in our car on our quote unquote honeymoon. And, uh, and then you do a really risky thing and you, you grab the cocaine and throw it out the, where do you, where do you throw it? Like out the window, right? Yeah. Well, he left me alone in the hotel room at a certain point to go and meet these guys, Mariano and who I guess had ties in Sardinia and these other two Italian guys. I can't remember. Roberto, I know, was one of them in the other, you know, typical Italian name. And um, <laughs> he left me in the hotel room alone and I was trying to call for help. But at the time, I couldn't speak Italian. I'm fluent in Italian now. Because um, at this point, you just really wanted to get away from him because you I thought wanted, he was going to kill you. Yeah, I, I wanted to go home. I mean, he had beaten the crap out of me a, a few times. He, 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 you know, the mental abuse was so bad. I would have rather taken a hit than the mental abuse. And I literally was like, I just want to go home. I have nothing to do, do with this. I, okay, that's it. I will admit I made a mistake, which I did not want to do. And that's yeah. why I came on the honeymoon because I was like, I brought every, I brought my mom and my aunt and s- some of my closest friends here for this quote unquote wedding. And I'm a wreck. You know, I was a wreck. I mean, at that point I was yeah. using secretly and yeah, it was a mess. So um, I took the car, I took the car keys from the hotel room because I couldn't speak to the operator. I couldn't communicate with the operator on the hotel phone. So I took the car keys and I ran down to the car while he was gone. He was in the hotel restaurant or something meeting with people. And I took the car, I drove the car up the side of a cliff where we were um, on the ocean. And I threw the stuff down into a ravine. I just threw these packages out of the car, went back to the hotel room and tried to get on with the operator again to ask to call. I wanted to call my mom. And so while we're in the process of trying to communicate, the door opens and he realizes what I did. And he, you know, beats the crap out of me. Like, you have no idea what you just did. I'm going to kill you before this is all over. And, you know, we're, I'm crying and he's screaming and it was a scene. And so he, pulls me out of the hotel, you know, it's like breaking my arm behind my back. Cause now I have to act like there's nothing wrong as we're walking past the front desk. And he takes me outside and, and walks the road with me until we find his packages. And so he's goes down into this ravine and he's picking up these packages and he's screaming. You have no idea what's, you have no idea. You, you just gotten me killed. You're going to get yourself killed. I'm going to kill you when I'm done with this, blah, 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 blah. And, um, we're surrounded by armed military police everywhere. The, yeah, the car, car, what are they called? Carbonari? The, Car- yeah, the Carabinieri. Carabinieri. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, they come out of everywhere. And apparently they had been watching him and uh, whoever he was working with. And while we were being arrested, the other guy, this Mariano Skira guy, he got away and as we would get into the next two years of trials and, you know, first I was arrested with him and put in prison in the women's side of this prison in on the Island of Sardinia for three months where that's where I found my faith, you know? Um, but in that time, uh, as the story would come out, Mariano went missing and they never, they never found him. I assumed 
through all these years, obviously, that they had found him and put him in prison. It turns out that he escaped to America and was living here in New York all these years and um, was living with some other Italians or other Italians from Sardinia or, you know, people that were, you know, that were Italian. And um, he just died. Wow. He, pa- he passed away last week. And that's why the story finally came out because I guess once he passed, then his identity came out and the Italian police never found him. And he lived here all this time. And um, so a girlfriend of mine who was one of the two amazing families that I'm still friends with to this day, uh, who helped me when I was living in this hotel residence, there, going through these trials and what have you. Um, she sent me the story and she said, well, here's the, here's the missing person all these years. I was blown away. I was like, was living here. Of course he was. So send you us, were, send us yeah. your desirable, send us everybody. Yeah. So, um, so you were in this prison in Italy for three months and you were facing up to 20 years in prison in mm-hmm. Italy, mm-hmm. which is so crazy because of this guy that you were married to, who was a complete, uh, psycho. So then, but in your prison cell, what happened in your prison cell? Cause that's when you came to faith in Christ. Tell yeah. us about that moment. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. Um, I sort of in that moment started relying on my, you know, I'm, I graduated from USC law school. So, you know, I, I was thinking, okay, w- what should you be doing now? You know, I was, they were doping me up with Valium to keep me calm. Cause obviously I went into shock. I mean, I was arrested in a prison cell. I had no idea if my family knew I was, if I was alive or dead. And, and every time I turn on the television in this prison cell, you know, in my room, I was all over it. So I knew that it was a big story, but I didn't know what to do. So I started journaling, you know, I started asking for little napkins and pieces of paper and a pen that I could write on so that I could, you know, I figured eventually someone would know where I was and I needed to, I needed to write everything down, you know, that, that had happened and that was happening. And so one night, um, I went to sleep and, um, at a certain point about, I can't remember how many days in it was, maybe a week, I don't know. But I was, I started very quickly holding the volume under my tongue and spitting it out, you know, because I didn't want to be drugged up. But at a certain point, um, I went to bed and I had a dream, you know, one night. And in my dream, it was, I get, I, 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 I don't, and I don't know, Beckett, if it was a dream or a visitation or what, but it was, it was so real you know, that you could touch it. And an angel, and I, you know, in my mind, it was an angel. She was dressed though, like a nun, like Mm -hmm. all in white, you know, which I went to Catholic school. So I thought, okay, I'm creative. I'm fairly cinematic. Yeah. Of course, God speaks to me in movie scenes and movie images. Right. And it's actually, I'm, I'm joking about it, but God is actually very visual with me. And I think it's just because that's how he made me. You know, I I think the Lord has a love language with all of us, right? Um, Of course he does. We're his kids, you know? Yeah. I I communicate with my son differently than I communicate with my adopted son. So anyway, um, so this angel kind of comes down and she's on a cloud. Like she's kind of like, her feet are like on a cloud. And she's cut all in white, like a habit. And she has big blue eyes, big, big blue eyes. And in the dream, I 
I'm aware that she looks exactly like my grandmother. You know, my mom's mom was full-blooded Italian, Sicilian, you know, with brown hair and big blue eyes. And um, so I'm talking to her and she has a book in her hand and she holds out this book to me. And I look at the book and on the book, it says the good news. And I look at her and she says, do you know what a Bible is? And I, and I remember saying, I think so. Yeah. And she said, well, this is the good news and I'm going to bring it to you. He's, or no, he's going to send it to you. And if you read it and commit your life to it, he'll save you. And I remember, I remember just kind of waking up and I was like, I got up out of the bed when I woke up and to look for a pen so that I could write this down. And as I'm in the room, kind of writing down this dream and crying because it was so real. Like I knew that an angel of the Lord visited me and there's no, I have no foundation scripturally for this. This is just crazy to me. Right. So, and plus I was raised Catholic. I didn't really believe in miracles and stuff. So, you know, I, what my paradigm has been really shifted from then until now, because <laughs> I've seen a whole lot of miracles at this point in my life. But um, as I was writing, I, someone knocked on my prison door and it, it was a woman named Mariucha, Senora Mariucha. She actually was the brigadier who ran the women's side of the prison. We would become very dear friends. Uh, she never believed I was guilty because she she would always say, I have daughters your age and I can see in your eyes that you're clean. You're a clean human. And so she became like a mom to me, you know, really looking out for me while I was there. But she says to me, so she gets the girl from the cell next door because I was in isolation. So I'm in a cell by myself. And she gets a girl who was in the cell next door who I would sort of loosely, she would try to communicate with me through the window. She and her sister were in a cell next door, Rita and Marilena, actually. And Rita, the little one, um, l- wanted to learn English. And she would always sing um, American, she would sing you songs. She yeah. would sing American songs all the time. And so eventually we would go on to where, you know, we got an English Italian dictionary and I would translate the songs for her. And then she would teach me them in Italian so that they were trying to help me learn to communicate. So, but before that, Mariucci gets her out of the cell and brings her to my cell, right? I now wake up from this dream in which I've seen this angel. And she said, and, and she says, God's going to send you the good news. And if you read it, you know, he'll change, he'll save you. He'll change your life. And so Rita's standing there with an English Italian dictionary with Senora Mariucha, and they're trying to tell me that someone's coming to visit the prison. And I'm like, okay, is it someone for me? Is it my mom? Is it what? And they're like, no, 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 no. And in the distance, because it was like stone concrete floors, I could hear like a little clip, 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 clip with someone walking. And Mariucha points, and in the down the hall, walking toward me is this little nun, she's all dressed in white. She looks exactly like the angel from my dream and the spinning image of my grandmother with these big blue eyes shining out, you know, from, you know, her face, you know, yeah. covered in her habit. And she walks straight to my cell and she holds out a book and on the book, it said the good news. And she gives me the book and she says, do you know what this is? This is God's word. It's a Bible. If you read it, he's going to save you and change your life. And I think, and I think, and I think, I, I hit the ground. Oh my gosh. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. It, it, it was the most amazing <clears throat> moment. And I, 
you know, and I've had a few of those moments with the Lord where he's been gracious enough to actually, I think, step out, step, step outside of eternity to let, to touch me, you know, where I could feel the finger of God. And that was. And so it was the new, she gave you the new Testament because it wasn't the full Bible. It was just the new Testament. No, which is very significant. It was the good news Bible. And I call it the, it it, it was uh, the good news Bible. I call the Bible equivalent for third graders, which I realized was God's, was God's sense of humor. He does not care what translation of the Bible you read. Find one that you can understand. He wanted me to be able to understand. It was like a Bible for a child. And like a child, I read from cover to cover, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. I mean, I went all the way through and every day for the next few months in that cell, he was speaking to me from the pages of the word. The word came alive for me. And for the first time in my life, I could understand it because growing up as a Catholic, you know, the priest read the Bible and then, you know, he told you what to do, which never made any sense to me because when you're sexually abused by someone, you really don't want to be told what to do, especially (laughs) by a man, you know? So I had a lot of stuff, right? So, um, God is so funny. You know, even to this day, it's like my husband doesn't tell me what to do. He'll take stuff to prayer and, and he'll leave it to God to move me. And, 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 and he does, you know? And so, okay. So then you find out, you find out that you're pregnant in prison mm-hmm. that from, from the European guy, you find out that you actually got pregnant with your yeah. son, Christian, who's, who's now what? 25, 30. No, he just turned 30. 40. Yeah. Okay. 30. Yeah. And so that's why, which was a miracle and amazing. And that's why they, they let you leave the prison and go to house arrest, basically. Exactly. Exactly. And, and so tell us how you got from house arrest to Switzerland and escaped Italy. Well, because after about two years of trials um, and appeals, basically my attorney pulled me in his office um, for the, I guess the last appeal that I was around for. And he said, look, um, so your first round of attorneys should never have pled you innocent. They should have made a plea deal for you and sent you home. Now you're in a mess because you, I was quickly separated from the estranged husband. He, of course, the drug dealers got the big drug attorney for him. I was like, I don't need an attorney. I'm innocent. Well, stupid me. You know, and then so finally, when we finally get an attorney after I'm convicted to like seven years in prison or something, um, the new attorney says, listen, you're in a mess. You know, you're in a legal mess. They're not going to they're not going to acquit you. It's too big a case. And you were with him. So the most that they and you and you you have no information to give them like you can't even give anybody up. So the most that I'm going to do is I'm going to go into this trial. I'm going to get you a, a change of status provision in your stay so that instead of being under house arrest, I'll request an appeal to the Supreme Court. That'll take six to eight months to be granted that appeal. And I will say, I will claim hardship that you need to work and that your brother's management company has offices in Milan and they need to allow you, you've been a model, you know, prisoner uh, living under house arrest for almost two years, a year and a half at that point. And so they should grant it. And when they do, you'll be able to go to Milan to work and come back every week on Thursday evening and check in between seven and nine. And I, and I kind of looked at him like, are you nuts? Like, 
And then what happens after that? He said, and then after that, you're going to go to prison and serve out your sentence. And you can decide whether you want to keep your baby that you've had since you've been here with you, or you can send your baby to your mom and you can see the baby when he's seven or eight years old. And at that point, I just burst into tears. And my mom, you know, my mom who aged a hundred years through this process, you know, just looked at him and she said, you know, <laughs> uh, professore, you know, she said, so you're telling me I'm supposed to go to another trial and then leave my daughter here knowing that she's going to jail. And he looked at her and he said, she can go to Milan and has to be back here once a week to check in. And my mom said, no, I understand. And he says, she can go to Milan, which is near water and check in. And, and then we got it. Then we got it. <laughs> then we got it. Two dum-dums. And so you, so, go to, so you go to Milan and you sneak over because you had your passport. Somehow they like accidentally left you with your passport. Yep. When they, and, when they released me from prison, it was in my belongings. And so and, you go to, to Northern Italy and, and you cross over into this Swiss and Swiss into Switzerland. Yeah. I, we go to Milan. Uh, we go to my brother's uh, tour manager's office or booking agent's office actually. And uh, he puts, $5,000 in cash in our hands. And he says, okay, I know what you're doing. We're going to help. Um, no credit cards. <laughs> so mm -hmm. he, he puts cash in our hand and we basically are driven to a boat because they said that would be the, there'd be the least controls at a border there because my attorney said, look, if you get stopped at a border, they're going to put you directly in jail because they're going to know what you're doing. You're not supposed to leave the country. So um, we took, we took a boat through the Lago Maggiore and, um, and got into Lugano, uh, Switzerland, Locarno, and spent the night in Switzerland and then took a commercial flight on Swiss Air home the very next morning. And Back to L.A. Yeah. Yeah. You, when you landed in L.A., you must have been like, oh, oh my gosh, God. I'm never leaving this place again. I mean, I just cried. And I couldn't leave for, let's see, 15 years I did not leave the country. And it was only when I was knee deep now, all of this was behind me. I was into a Hollywood career working for, you know, the networks um, that, and my son was getting ready to turn 15. And my attorney called and said, remember, I told you that in double your sentence, I could, I could request an absolution. So I said, yeah, I've been waiting, you know, for that. So I had a friend who went to his office for me in Italy a guy that I had met in New York actually and dated for a while. And he's a great friend because what he did for me, I'll never forget. You know, he went, he went, he traveled to the Island and he went to my attorney's office and he paid his legal fee for him to request from Silvio Berlusconi, actually, who was still president at the time, yeah. if he would completely absolve my case. And he did. And then I was sent documents. So you basically got a pardon from the president of Italy, Ber Berlusconi. God bless Berlusconi for doing that. that yeah, right. I know a lot of people say a lot of bad things about him, but I'm like, well, yeah, well, he's pretty good in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. kind of like Trump. He was real nice to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. And yeah. so now, so after that pardon, then you could travel freely without worrying about any kind of ramifications. Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. So, yeah. so, so then you get back to LA and you get just really quickly, you, you get, um, into Hollywood, you get into a show business and you're, you know, become hosts on VH1, you do stuff with MTV, you're doing all this stuff 
Um, you get a, a show on NBC called Later. I remember the show, Later with Cynthia Garrett. Yeah. It was like the, a, a late night talk show. I think it was the first late night talk show with a woman, right? As a yeah, well, African American woman. Yeah, because yeah. Joan, Joan Rivers, Joan was Rivers the first had done woman. Yeah. yeah, but I was the first black woman in network. You know, I mean, I my dream was to have a parking spot on the on the breezeway. You know, where Leno and and uh, Cosby, when Cosby was huge, they they all parked their cars on the breezeway, and so I got my spot on the breezeway, and I came on after Leno and, and Conan, and um, quite flatteringly. Jay, I would book a lot of new music talent because from my VH1 days and from my brother and I was really immersed in the music scene and I loved I loved breaking talent. So I would break a lot of the new music acts and then Jay would book them on The Tonight Show. So. <laughs> <laughs> and then you, you um, so then, but, but, but all the while during this time in Hollywood, you were becoming really successful and you you had become you had become a Christian, you know, in in that cell, and you had that amazing conversion experience. Um, but you kind of put Jesus sort of on. I think you said um, in your book, you said, "Where is it? I have it." That uh, as success increased in Hollywood, your relationship with Christ suffocated. Yeah, yeah. It's like he was uh, my my friend who was in the back seat of a car. He had given me. And I was driving and it was a great ride. And every now and then I would turn around and say, thank you. And I, the, I, I, I lost relationship with him. You know, I didn't, I was a baby Christian when I came back from this experience in Italy, right? I'd just gotten saved and I didn't have anyone around me to do what I feel is so critical now for a generation of Christians, which is to disciple them. You know, you've got yeah. to, you've got to have fellowship. You've got to have the discipleship. If not, you know, you're, you're back. You're, you can, you can slink back into stuff. And for me, the biggest issue of my life was, was the male relationship was, was, you know, men, my heart was broken from being sexually abused and I still had not confronted or dealt with my abuse and what it had, what it did to my psyche. And so I was kind of, I was very much living my life for myself. You know, I was, I was, I was a Christian and I would go to church, but I wasn't surrendered. You yeah. know, I, I, I like to say I was like Jesus, saved, but not Jesus surrendered. Was, yeah. Jesus wasn't Lord of your life. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so when, how did, and then how did that change? When did you, when did you surrender? Wow. You know, my process of surrender was kind of a, it was a journey through, yeah. through a few years. Yeah. It was because as I got more fame, I became increasingly more aware of the vapid, shallow world that I was in. I became increasingly more aware that even the people around me who said, I want to thank Jesus as they drank a 40 at an award show were full of it. Like, mm -hmm. you know, and I, and I saw, I just, I saw through it all. I was like, I saw the hypocrisy in it and it wasn't fulfilling my soul the way that I thought that it would. You know, I dreamt of this career in television from the time I was a little girl and, you know, there I had it. And I, you know, my, I, my friends were all famous and, you know, I had private planes at my disposal because, you know, I always had wealthy men pursuing me and blah, blah, blah. But I, I didn't, I wasn't happy. I wasn't happy in my soul. And, yeah. and I knew what that was. And I just didn't know how to get back to it, Beckett. And, and 
really and truly, there just came a, a, a day that I just, I got on my knees, you know, on my face and I just crying and I just was crying out to the Lord. And I, I say that in that moment, I counted the cost and I counted it all as loss for the joy of knowing Christ. I wanted to know him deeper. That's my and, favorite verse. I say that verse every time I tell my story, because that's like, yeah. that's my verse. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Yeah, yeah. I know. I know. We share that in common. It's when I watch, when I've watched you on stuff and you share your testimony and you, you, you say that scripture and I'm like, wow, that is my scripture. I drove around listening to a song by Corey Asbury kind of a rock version, rock, you know, worship song, you know, and it was like, I counted the cost and it, and it's around that scripture. And it, Corey wrote it. I don't know if you know who Corey is. He wrote reckless, reckless love. Oh yeah. I've heard. Yeah. I know. It's, yeah. Yeah. I know. yeah. Oh, the overwhelming da, 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 reckless love of God. Anyway, uh, Corey's like one of my spiritual sons and really good friends with my son. And um, Corey, that was his song from when the Lord reached in and he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm good. I'm going on this ride. And so I didn't know what this ride meant. I just knew that there was joy, peace, love, and happiness, you know, in, in what I felt in with the Lord. And when I was in church and, and when I was around people that loved the Lord and knew the Lord, and I was just ready for whatever I mean, if I knew everything that the Lord was going to change about me and clean up, I, I don't know. I may have run down the street with my hair on fire going, no, but you know, God's such a gentleman. Like he just sort of slowly loved me into wanting to change things about my life that were not productive, you know, yeah. and here, and I had a son at this point, you know, when he was 14 and I was worried, you know, I was like, I had had a very, I had a very powerful prophecy early on over my son when he was a baby. And I first got back from Italy and I was in a church that the Lord literally directed me to go to through a series of miraculous kind of voices and people mm -hmm. talking to me. And I ended up in this church and it was, it was so that this woman could actually give me a word over my son. And what she said was take care of him and raise him up in the Lord because his service in God's kingdom is to be exalted above many and he's important and you have to do you have to be responsible about this responsibility and you know and I heard that and I thought oh wow you know I knew my son was special and blah 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 and he saved my life you know and blah 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 because he got me out of prison I mean I, if I wasn't yeah. pregnant I would have been in prison the whole time um but at around 14 years old I realized I hadn't followed the Lord on that you know, mm -hmm. I had a kid, I sent him to the best private schools on the West side in LA, but I hadn't really established a foundation for him in Christ. And that's for me, that was part of the big motivation of surrender. Cause I was like, look, Lord, I don't want to mess this up because I know what you told me and he's my everything. And mm -hmm. You can take, and I remember the prayer. I was like, you can take the cars, you can take the house, you can take the agents, you can take the attorneys, you can take the famous friends, you can take everything, Lord. I just want you. Praise God. Yeah. I love that. Well, we're going to leave it there. But be before we leave, so tell us just briefly about the sessions. Do you still do that, the sessions? Yeah. Well, you know, the sessions has morphed. The sessions still air on TBN in a lot of places around the world. Um, and you can get it on TBN on demand or on my platforms. Um, or they're also on Salem media. They're on the prey 
on the Prey app. You know, my, yeah. my sessions, pot, podcast and, and programs are kind of all over on a lot of different platforms. But that has morphed for me, which it did during the pandemic, into a, a, a live stream that we do weekly called Girl Club. And it's every every uh, every Monday. It's a podcast. Um, we film which I'm going to be on apparently. Which you're going to be a guest on, and we are so excited <laughs> to have you because I think your testimony is so it's so powerful. And you know, we're like a bunch of very transparent girls who you know, and women. We wear we love the Lord, powerhouse. You know, teachers and evangelists in this group, and talented singer songwriters. But like. We love people like we just we love people yeah. and we but we also don't compromise the word of God. And so we're so excited to be able to have you on to talk to you because we want to we want to we want to walk our lives out with faith, you know, yeah. and yeah. I mean, that's what I always say. This life is a vapor. I mean, the Bible says this, this life is a vapor. It's a mist. It's like, what do you want your life to be when you meet Christ on the la- you know, when you meet him face to face, you know? Mm-hmm. So we're going to leave it there. Cynthia Garrett, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Oh, Beckett, this was great. I'm a fan and I'm so happy. Like I, I, we kind of cold called you and you replied back. And so now I, now I have a new friend and I just, I love you. I know we need to, we need to hang out when you're in LA or I'm in Tennessee. That is a deal. And I'm probably in Cal in LA more than you're in Tennessee. So I'll hit you up and we'll go do coffee. (laughs) Sounds good. All right, thank you guys for watching. We will see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Beckett Cook Show. Your support makes this content possible. All episodes of The Beckett Cook Show are also available on YouTube. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. Thank you to the team at Life Audio for their partnership with us. If you go to lifeaudio.com, you will find more faith-centered podcasts about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. This is Perseus Poku, host of the Sound Reasoning Ministry podcast. Learn how to share and defend your faith by listening to us weekly. Subscribe at lifeaudio.com.